Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. There are also full-length teachings and shorter hot topics and the Q&As. Our first question today is about the doctrines of demons. Let me go ahead and put that up on screen and I want to uh, show you a scripture that I've got ready to go here. So what are the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1? It says here, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrine of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then it gives a couple of things that are going on in the days of Paul. These are doctrines of demons in his day. They may be around today as well, but these are prevalent in his day. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food, which is created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on to give a little bit of an argument for the second one. But it is interesting to me that he brings these two up. The first one was forbidding to marry. In fact, in the first century, there was a false doctrine, first and early second century, there was a false doctrine which said that having sex within marriage was wrong. And there were a lot of Christians who were abstaining from it. And Paul deals with that a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 but it was a false doctrine and that not marrying was somehow really spiritual. Paul deals that with that there where he talks about the gift of singleness, which some people have. And if you don't, then go ahead and marry. And also uh, kosher food, um, eating things that God has made to be eaten. Now, that the, co- the, the kosher diet was for the Old Testament saints for Israel before the time of Christ. And there were a lot of people running around saying that they had to keep the kosher diet interestingly enough, that's taught today as well. And there are those who believe that you have to keep the Sabbath laws of Israel or other things, uh, which would be considered to be also the doctrines of demons. Now, I want to go to another passage, and this one is 2 Timothy 4. We were in 1 Timothy 4, first of all. Now we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here we have another passage on the last days and false teachers. Listen to what it says. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing uh, and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is again the last days, not enduring a sound doctrine. The time will come. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So here we have people who have itching ears. They just want to hear what they want to hear. And the same thing is true. I'm going to go over here to Galatians. I'll do that here in a minute. Um, They just want to hear what they want to hear. Um, And today, the most popular teachers who are out there are teachers that do not teach the gospel. This isn't just today. It's been for a few decades that there have been pastors who try to be all-inclusive of everyone and they won't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those that pervert the gospel, make it into something different, make faith not trusting God's word, but a substance by which we can get something from God. That is a false teaching. I believe that these are false teachings that are doctrines of demons. Remember in Matthew 24, when the disciples asked, where, uh, when the disciples asked, when are these things going to happen? When are they going to take place? And so Jesus goes on to talk about the last days. The first thing that Jesus says is, beware that no one deceives you. So you have the responsibility as we march into these last days to make sure that you're not deceived. And I am often amazed at how offended people will get at false teachers. When you're not even calling them a false teacher, all you're doing is pointing out this person believes this and that's wrong. 
and people will get upset because they listened to them. They were ministered to by them. And at that point, we've got to ask the question, who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to God and his word or to someone that you received something from and were blessed by? Of course, you need to be loyal to his word. And just because someone gives you something that is the truth doesn't mean they're not also teaching lies. That's really important because false teachers will quote a lot of scriptures and people today will think, well, I, they were t- t- I heard them talk about the truth, but they ignore the very deceitful teachings. Now, I think we can get an idea of how false teachings work by looking at the way that Eve is is deceived in the garden, all right? So here we have Satan deceiving Eve with his own doctrines. This is the doctrine of demons. And I think that we can build a case for how the doctrines of demons work without having a list of what all of those doctrines are. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And at some point we could talk a lot more about the serpent because that's already a little bit confusing, but we knew though, we do know that this is the arch enemy, right? This is the dragon, the serpent of old, and he is in the garden and he's more cunning. And he said to the woman, God indeed said, um, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The first thing that Satan does when he shows up is to change God's word. That's where Satan's attack is going to be. He did the same thing to Jesus. He questioned, if you are the son of God, then make this bread a rock. And then he said, if you're a son of God, throw yourself off the temple for it says that he will hold you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. But he left out the portion there where it says he will hold you up in his will lest you dash your foot against the stone. So he changes God's word. He he lies. He just, just flat out changes it. He leaves things off. So God had said to Eve, You can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree in the middle of the garden, and he said this to Adam, who told Eve, by the way, he said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. So here he says, God, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In other words, God's made all of these trees and he won't let you eat of any of them. So he starts to plant doubt and questions right away. That's what doctrines of demons do. They change God's word and they start to plant doubts of God's goodness. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit, but of the trees in the garden, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Now the problem with Eve is that she makes God's word more stringent. God never said you couldn't touch it. They could, but she said, you shall not eat it and you shall not touch it. And so we cooperate with the doctrines of demons when we make God's word more strict. This is one of the reasons that legalism is so bad and why we need to stay away from it. We begin to feel like we are okay because of our own works and we make God more strict. And especially if you're a pastor or a teacher, Jesus sets people free. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Don't allow anyone to lay trips on you, trying to add to God's word. And so she makes it more stringent by saying we can't touch it. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now God had said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But now he denies God's word. Not only do doctrines of demons change God's word, but they deny God's word. And there are any number of doctrines that we could point out today that are very popular today in the church, in churches across the world that do this very thing. So he denied it, you will not die. He said, you shall surely not die for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now he just changes it. First of all, he questions it, then he denies it, then he flat out changes it. He knows in the day that you will eat it, you will be like him. This is the temptation. Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to put his throne above the throne of God. And so now he says to Eve, you will be like God, which is what Satan wanted. Interestingly enough, there's a false teaching among faith teachers, the prosperity movement, that we are gods and that we can be like God. 
they'll use terms about being God and they take a couple of passages and they conflate them and they change them and they confuse them to be able to say, see uh, the things that are there. So the woman now cooperates again with him. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, was pleasant for the eyes, and the tree was desirable, desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She took it and she ate. We want to avoid doctrines of demons. And in order to do that, we have to stay true to God's word, know that's what we need, not allow people to change it or question it, know that God's word, sola scriptura and totus scriptura, only God's word and all of God's word. Don't let anyone take away from God's word. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. And when we do that, we protect ourselves against the doctrines of demons that cause people to believe different things, that cause people to seek their own way and their own desires. So I want to welcome you who are here. It's really glad to have you here. I hope you guys are blessed. It's good to see you all logging on. If you're joining us, say hi. I'm glad you're here. If you have a question, then write the word question in front of your question, read it a couple of times so that you know it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it into the comment section and I'll be able to get them as we make our way through here. Uh, we have questions that are coming in from Facebook and from YouTube. So really good to have you guys here. Uh, we have our first question from uh, Jari. Let me go ahead and get us back to our regular screen here first. All right. And then we'll bring in our question from Jari. Uh, question. Was Galatians 4.13 referring to, um, what is Galatians 4.13 referring to? Was God using an illness to bring about the gospel to the Galatians? Paul said he had a sickness. Thank you. Good to see you, Jari. Let's go ahead and go to Galatians 4.13 and we will take a look at it. All right, let me get there. Galatians 4.13. So yeah, Paul did, was forbidden. Paul got to Galatia and the region of Galatia and Phrygia, they're up north in Turkey towards the, the Black Sea and it's cold. And it sounds cold, doesn't it? Galatia and Phrygia. I got to think that those two words come from something from a Greek word that's connected because it was so cold there. And he wanted to go to Asia, which meant that if you're looking at a map up north, it meant going right over into Asia. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbade him from going. And he doesn't say how he forbade him. But then we get into the book of Galatians and we get a little bit more information. And here we have Galatians 4. Verse 14, I think, is what was asked. Um, yeah, let's go back a little bit, Jari. Uh, he says in verse 12, go ahead and get here and I can read it for you. All right. He says in verse 12, uh, Brethren, I urge you, become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. So it tells us right there, Paul has an illness. Now, this is really kind of strange because Paul has the ability to be able to heal. He heals several people. He brings a woman back to life. He sends handkerchiefs when he's working. Not He doesn't sell them like television evangelists or, or faith healers do today. He sends them to people and it's a point of faith so that when they get it, they believe that they are healed and they receive the healing. But this has come from a gift that this apostle has, the apostle Paul. And yet, he is sick, even though he has the gift of healing. Now, this should tell us something, that never in the Bible does it say that God's going to heal everyone. The gifts of healings, I believe, are for today. Last week, I talked some about the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. I told you, um, I told you guys that I used to go to an Assembly of God's church and I used to go to Charismatic churches. I went to a four-square church, all Pentecostal and Charismatic. Um, and Calvary Chapel is, I don't know that we align ourselves today with the Charismatic movement, but we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And we believe that the gifts of healings, both plural there, which is interesting, are for today. But Paul was sick with an infirmity. 
And he says, you know that it was because of a physical infirmity that I preached the gospel to you. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of Christ, even Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So there are the Judaizers going to, to, to Galatia. They are trying to persuade them that they have to keep the law in order to be saved, to really be saved, or to, you know, the things that he calls them mutilators in this book. They were teaching you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the Sabbath, you got to keep the law. There are all kinds of problems. And he says, I came to you and because of physical infirmity and you guys would have given me your eyes, which probably tells us that Paul had an eye disease. I mean, just putting the pieces together of the context here. They would have plucked out their eyes and given them to Paul. Later on, Paul would say, see what size of letters I write to you. This is my handwriting. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. And so when he would sign the end of a letter that he had dictated to someone, he would write the very ending with his own hand. And that would be a sign because people were sending false letters around about Paul. Something else, Jari, about this, um, about this topic is that, let me get to the right place. Somewhere, something else, Jari, about this topic is that Timothy has some stomach issues. And Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach. Now, Paul could have sent him something. Paul could have prayed for him to be healed. But it seemed like Paul didn't have that gift all of the time. And I think that's really important because a lot of false teachers, when you go back and you look at William Branham, V.H. Grant, uh, a, a lot of the other faith healers back in the day, and even faith healers today like um, Benny Hen, they use a lot of the same things. They tell people that they are healed when there are accounts of William Branham telling people they were healed from a disease and then they died later. I have a personal experience with V.W. Grant, who was a faith healer, who who said that my dad was healed of ALS and then my dad died later on. In my family, I saw the hope in my father and my mother and then I saw that hope dashed when the disease of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, continued on. This is one of the reasons that I feel so strongly against these charlatans and they are charlatans. They're out to just make money. And I could continue to name the names that are there. When someone is just interested in making money, it's interesting, William Branham would say, he'd do his healing services and say, I'm not in it for money. I don't want money. But then he would pass the offering plate and ask people to give money to God. He would say that he never took any money from anybody, but he was collecting money from them. And well, that speaks for itself. All right. So yeah, Paul had a, an eye disease probably. He had some kind of infirmity in his flesh. That's what the Bible says. And this would tell us that sometimes we're going to face sickness and sometimes we're going to face death. Let me just deal with one of their verses that they use and I want to go there to show you. Uh, and this is in 1st John chapter, uh, third, excuse me, 3rd John. Uh, it's only got one chapter. So it's, it's pretty close to the beginning here. Let me go ahead and bring it on the screen and I'll show you this. This is a verse, that, one of the verses that they use to say that God is going to heal everybody. So John is writing to his friend Gaius. He says, the elder, which is John, the apostle, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. That's his buddy. They're friends. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And so then faith healers will take this verse out of context. It's, it's John saying to his friend, I hope everything's going well with you. I hope you prosper your health and your soul. He's saying it to a friend. This is not, thus says the Lord. In fact, if we just look at it, he says, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. He says, in all things that you would prosper. Well, the Bible says, above all things, I would that you would have a fervent love for one another. That's what God cares about the most. And this is just a friend talking to a friend. That's why we have to know the context of the Bible 
the context of a book in the Bible, the context of the chapters in a book, the context of a book. Go back and read who it was written to, why it was written. Go back and read the chapter, read the verses in front and behind it so that you can make sure that you rightly divide the word of truth and are not deceived. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today, but there are many people that deceive. And I think we're living in the last days when these deceptions are taking place and happening. And it is so bad that these things take place. And the people that are being taken advantage of, think of this, even all the way back to William Branham, people before him and people after him. William Branham died in 65 in an auto accident, was very popular as a faith healer in the 50s and 60s, had many false doctrines besides just that that God wanted you to be healed and that he had the gift of healing, which it was proven that he didn't have because people after they were declared healed by him died. And that's the case, by the way, with all faith healers. If you're a faith healer, you're taking people's money. One of the things you should do, and I don't know that I should give advice to faith healers, but one thing you should do is not tell people they're healed because later on when they've got the disease still, they know you're, you're lied, that you did not tell the truth. And of course, they cover themselves by saying, well, you didn't have enough faith. Jesus said the faith of the friends that brought the paralyzed man and lowered him before had healed him. The faith of your friends has made you whole. So if I don't have enough faith and your faith healer, then spot me some. Then you should be able to do it. Stop telling people that they're healed when they're not just to take their money. All right. So you can tell it's a little bit of a touchy subject for me. And I think that you can understand why. Uh, so yeah, Paul had some kind of a disease and it's interesting that he had it because he was an apostle. Our next question comes from Albert. Albert says in Psalms 95, the psalmist seems to change narrative perspective in verse seven and eight. And God speaks. Is the psalmist just writing from this perspective or is God speaking through the psalmist? All right. Psalms 95. I don't remember this Psalm exactly, Albert. So let's go there and let me see if I can find it in context and be able to answer the, whether or not there's a perspective change uh, in this context. All right. So Psalms 95. I got to get an easier way to be able to look scriptures up. I'm working on it, by the way. So six and seven. Let's start by reading our seven and eight. Let's start by reading seven and eight and then we'll come back and try to find it uh, in context and see um, exactly what's going on here. All right, Albert, and by the way, good to see you. So um, in Psalms 95, seven and eight, it says, for he is our God and we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the wilderness. All right, so let's see what the perspective change is. Let's go all the way back. Um, so he says, in the beginning, and I have Psalms 95, right? Okay. Um, oh, come and let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with praises. So he's encouraging people to praise God, to be thankful. For the Lord is, is the great God and the great King above gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the earth also, so God can move anywhere at all. There's great power with God. There's no boundaries. The sea is his and he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down and let us kneel down before the Lord. So he's talking about the greatness of God and that we should come and kneel down before him. And by the way, most often in the Bible, when there are encourages, it's encouraged for someone to worship God and praise him it's someone who is created. It's a person praising God. It is God's word and he's writing what God wants him to write, but he is moved and encouraging people to worship him. I say that because there are those who say that God is um, a megalio, um, that God is a megalomaniac, that God wants people to worship him. God is great and there is none like him and he wants us to know who he is. And you could have somebody who is just great at what they do. Um, you could have a guitar player like Van Halen who passed away not long ago, great guitar player. And if you went to Van Halen and said, you are a really good guitar player. And Van Halen said, no, I'm not. Don't, no, I'm not a good guitar player. 
That would be false humility. God is great. And when the Bible encourages us to praise him, it's because so that we can discover the greatness of God. All right, so come and kneel down and worship before him. Let us kneel before the Lord. All right, now the perspective change. Let's see what it is. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the days of, the, of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me and he tried me, though they saw my works. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation. All right, so he turns from praising them, encourages them not to harden their heart and not to be like the children of Israel who hardened their heart against God in the days, in the, in the trial in the wilderness. So they went out of slavery and into the wilderness for 40 years. Think of that. Oftentimes when you leave something tyrannical, you end up in the wilderness. So the perspective is from how great God is that we, because of his greatness and worshiping him, shouldn't harden our hearts like they did in the wilderness. Okay, so that's it. Now let's go back and take a look at your question here and see if we can, can figure it out. Um, part one, in Psalms 95, the psalmist seems to change narrative perspective in verses seven and eight. And I see that. And God speaks. Is this the psalmist just writing from this perspective or is God speaking through the psalmist? Albert, I think that these things are really hard to know. I think is God's laying it on his heart and God uses humans to write these and he uses their personality and he uses the languages that they know. The Bible's written in Hebrew, in Aramaic, parts of, um, parts of Daniel and another book of the Bible has some Aramaic in it and then Greek in the New Testament. So they're writing what they know. They're writing their vocabulary. They're speaking from their heart. So the Spirit of God is moving on them and, and sharing with them what to write, sometimes from their perspective and sometimes from God's perspective. And so how God does this, I don't know. Is it, is it just something they feel like they change and now start speaking for God? Is it something they knew they were doing? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to answer your question. Is the psalmist just writing from his perspective or is God speaking through the psalmist? God's definitely speaking through the psalmist, Albert. And God will do that in certain portions of scripture where he changes and begins to speak. And um, so if we were just to go back at it again and look at this passage one more time through God speaking in that transition in 7 and 8, so we go uh, seven for he is our God and we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and as in the day of wilderness when your fathers tested me. So now all of a sudden in verse seven, you've got the, the uh, psalmist speaking. And then in verse eight, you've got God speaking. And I just think this is a transition that we've got to go. Well, we're transitioning from the psalmist to God. And this is not the only place we see it. We see it in a lot of different places. And yes, I do believe it is God speaking, Albert. I think that God changes the transition and all of a sudden has him speaking for him. And certainly the psalmist is not talking about because these things that he goes on to talk about are things that God did, right? That God, um, when um, your fathers tested you, whom they tried through, though they saw my works. So this is God, my works. Uh, for 40 years, I was grieved with this generation. So obviously the, the psalmist isn't grieved with that generation that was in the wilderness tested. That was a long time before the psalmist. Uh, this was written, I don't know which psalm, I'd have to look at when the psalmist is written, but sometime um, between, somewhere around a thousand years before the time of Christ, the psalmist was written and the wilderness wanderings were 250 years before this, or at least 250 years before this, all right? Um, even farther, maybe 1450 BC. Okay. So hopefully I got my math right there. Uh, thank you, Albert, for your question. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you are joining us for the very first time, we're really glad that you're here. We hope that you guys are having a good day. Uh, we would love uh, for you to submit a question. Go ahead and write out the word question or question mark and submit it to the comment section and we'll get it in the order that it is. I have a part two here from Albert. I'm gonna go ahead and take the part two. Uh, we usually just take one question from a person so we have time to do it. But since you broke it into two parts, Albert, I'm gonna go ahead and do it. Part two. 
I've seen where some Christians, uh, Christian writes will at times write from the point of view of God and Jesus speaking to his children, as long as what they write is biblical, do you believe that it is okay? So let me try to figure out again exactly what you're saying here. So part two of it, I've seen where some Christian writers will at times write from the point of view of God and Jesus speaking to his children. As long as this, as they write in, uh, is, uh, as long as what they write is biblical, do you believe it's okay? So I see what you're saying. So someone's right now, I'm reading a book. Like I'm reading right now, Paul Copan's Is God a Moral Monster? And what if he at one point just switches to God's view and starts talking as if he's God? Uh, is that okay? I think it's very dangerous to put words in God's mouth. And so if you're quoting a scripture, if you've got a very, very scriptural, you know, that you're saying, listen, God says, and then I think you're okay. You cover yourself. But if you begin to share anything that is outside of what God has said clearly in the Bible, and I mean anything, I, I would rather quote God than say that all of a sudden start speaking as if I am God. And I would rather do that in anything that I would write. I would rather quote God then start speaking as if I am God. I think it's a different instance in Scripture when you're talking about Psalms 95. Uh, because all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. So God inspired it. Not all writers are writing with the inspiration of God. So I've got to think there are places that this has been abused. And maybe they're bringing up certain things that are biblical but God isn't trying to say it through them. I just would stay away from it. And I don't like it when I read it. That's not to say that it's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying I don't like it and I would stay as far away from it as I possibly could. All right, so thank you, Albert, for your question, part one and part two. We have a question now from JG. JG says, question, would the name that is above all other names technically be Yahweh instead of the Greek name Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 through 11? Uh, no, JG, I don't believe so. So in that passage, he is talking about Jesus humbling himself. He humbled himself, being equal to God, God the Father, God the Son, and then he became a man, and then he became a servant. This is in that passage, okay? This is all of, of Philippians chapter two. He becomes a man, then he becomes a servant. So he could have become a man and been a king and had people serve him. He is God. He could have done that. But he chose instead to become a servant and then be obedient to the point of death on the cross. Die the worst death, the most shameful death you could possibly die. There are people today who will not follow Jesus because he is crucified. It's one of the things that you'll often hear Jewish people say, I can't follow someone who, who the, the Messiah wouldn't be crucified, they say. Even though there's Old Testament passages that talk about a crucifixion before it was ever invented, like Psalms 22, and, and uh, about a shameful death like Isaiah 53. The servant passages, there's four of them out of the book of Isaiah. And so then it says, and because he did this, I'm paraphrasing Philippians now, because he did this, well, let's go there and read it. Let me go ahead and go there. We might as well. Uh, so in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, so this is after it talks about him um, being obedient to the point of the cross, it says then in verse 9, let me get there. He says then in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, remember that's Messiah, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, is Lord to the glory of the Father. So there are scholars, pastors who will debate, is the name Lord as it is in verse 11 or is it Jesus as it is in verse 10? Here's what I believe. I believe that it's the human name given to Jesus. 
Jesus chose to become human. That's what this passage is all about, which is absolutely amazing. He chose to be like us. And he chose to take on that form forever. For his body is changed and our bodies are changed so we will be like him throughout all of eternity. He chose to identify himself with us, which is an absolutely amazing thing. Sometimes people will ask, well, do you think that God has redeemed other, you know, throughout of time, has God redeemed other cultures and has God worked in other ways? Maybe, I don't know, but we have become like him. That's how much he cares for us, that he came and died and God took on flesh. So I think it is the name of Jesus that is above every name. I think you could say the name Yahweh is above every name because Jesus is Yahweh. So you're not going to be mistaken saying either of them, but when you're talking about the text, it's the name Jesus. And even in verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, if we were in the Old Testament, Lord would be the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's pretty amazing. And it's a, a strong point of deity that if he is Lord, then the Messiah was deity who became a man, which is what this passage is all about. So thank you, JG, for your question. It is uh, a very good question, and uh, thank you for sharing with us today. If you're joining us for the very first time, really good to see you guys. I want to welcome Keith, uh, who is one of our moderators. I see Daniel is also here, another one of our moderators. Uh, thank you guys for being there uh, during our Q&As. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and you got another question from JG here, and I uh, that looks like the same question. So I'm going to go ahead and make my way down here. If you have a question, then write the word question. Make sure to reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it's clear. Our next question comes from Annika. Annika, good to see you. And Annika says, question, what are your thoughts on deconstruction? I've heard people who think deconstructing your faith is a good thing and people who are against it. Uh, deconstructing your faith, just think about those two words. Deconstructing your faith. So your faith is the way by which you are saved. Your faith is your faith in Christ and deconstructing it is a bad thing. Now, in progressive Christianity, they are deconstructing their faith. They are questioning everything. They don't believe the Bible anymore. They don't believe in miracles. They are deconstructing their faith. And to them, that is a positive thing. They just oppose that against Christianity that is legalistic, uh, that is controlling, and they, they kind of make this straw man of Christianity that is full of all kinds of bad things. And then they claim that they are tearing that down or they easily tear that down and that deconstructing their faith is a positive thing. But it's a negative thing because real Christianity is not the, the Bible talks against the straw man that is built often, talks against legalism. It talks against people lording over other people. It talks against these things. And so deconstructing your faith is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And I think that this is a sign that we're living in the last days, by the way, because the Bible says that there will be a great falling away in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's going to come before the rapture. The word there is apostasia. It, it, it could be making a reference to the actual rapture itself, but the falling away comes first, so that would be the rapture before, or people falling away. And we do know that in the last days, there are going to be many who are going to fall away and, and pile for, up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. I think we're living in those days. And I think people deconstructing their faith and calling what is bad good is a sign that we are living in the last days. So thank you, Annika, for your question. I really appreciate that. I hope that that is helpful. Uh, you can go ahead and ask a follow-up question uh, if you have one. All right. So uh, uh, again, want to welcome you guys. If you're here and you have a question, 
write the word question out or put a Q or a question mark in front of it and then go ahead and write your question. Um, we have Catherine who is going, who has, has a question. Uh, Catherine says, question, all of the people that have passed a long time ago and have recently have had their judgment day or are they waiting for the big day still like we, the ones still living are? And if they are still waiting, where are they waiting at? All right, uh, Catherine, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. And so we're talking about, the question is about people who die today, who are ungodly, and when are they gonna have their judgment day? Well, you find that in the book of Revelation, in the great white judgment throne. And we're told that there is a first resurrection that would include Jesus, the rapture of the church, the tribulation states who are, are resurrected, and then who are taken, and the two witnesses, by the way, and the, who are taken through the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, there's the second death, the first resurrection and the second death. They're compared, just opposed against each other. And so then it says that the books are opened and they're judged. So those people who live, who have died throughout all of history, are not judged until the very end when they will stand before the great white judgment throne of God and the books will be opened and they will be judged for what they have done. God's judgment will be fair and they are, where, where are they at now? Uh, so in Luke, Jesus tells the story or parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And when they die, the rich man is in torment but then there's a cavern and you see Abraham comforting the poor man. And the rich man says, send the poor man over here. He still thinks he's in charge. To have him dip his hand in water. So there's obviously water where this rich man, where the poor man is being comforted and bring it over to me. And Abraham says, we can't go over to you. Neither can you come here. And eventually the rich man says, well, send uh, someone to my brother that they wouldn't, brothers, that they would know not to come to this place. And Jesus says, they have the prophets and the law, and if they do not believe the prophets, neither will they believe if someone is risen from the dead. Now, many believe that this is the holding place. Remember that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, which is hell in the, in the book of Revelation. So wherever they're at now, it's not hell. We know they're in the grave. We know that they're in some kind of torment from what Jesus said and from some other passages that we could talk about, and they will one day be resurrected into their, I'm gonna take it, their bodies. We are never told that they're resurrected into their bodies, but I kind of assume that. I don't know whether it's a proper assumption or not. Don't wanna be dogmatic about it because we don't know whether it's just their soul or their bodies, and then they are judged at the end of the age, at the end of the millennium, all right? So thank you, uh, Catherine, for your question. Uh, hopefully that is helpful as always. Uh, if we can get to it, if you have a follow-up question, go ahead and submit that and we will uh, we'll follow up with it. So we have a question from Renee. Good to see you, Renee. Renee says, what prophets, um, what prophets is scripture, what prophets in this scripture verse referring to? All right, now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, thank you. All right, so you're asking which prophets is this scripture referring to? And then let's see where those prophets are in this scripture. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets. There you go. Uh, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. All right, thanks, Renee. Took me a while to figure out what prophets you were talking about. Uh, I think it's the first century prophets. I think that the gift of prophecy was particularly strong in the first generation, not because the, the gift of prophecy would go away in church history, because I don't believe it has. I still believe it's around today. But 
but because they didn't have all of the scriptures. Think about the Thessalonians and how confused they were about the return of Jesus and how Paul had to write and say, don't listen to any letter as if it's written from us. And he had to give them clarity about what was going to take place. And the Galatians, uh, others that were really confused before the scriptures were all put together. Again, in Thessalonica, where they thought the people who had died somehow weren't in the presence of God. We know that to be absent from this body is to be present with God. They didn't have those scriptures yet. And so they were really struggling. So God gave them prophets. And I think that gift of prophecy was really strong. When Paul's making his way to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, there's the prophet Agabus, very dramatically like prophets like to do got up and tied a belt. I think it was Paul's belt around his hands and said, this awaits you in Jerusalem. And that itself would, um, Paul says, are you, and then they wept and they cried and told Paul not to go. And Paul said, are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die and to give my life for Christ. And we also have uh, daughters of, of, of a prophet who prophesy. We have other uh, prophets that we see in scripture. Uh, and so the apostles, the 12 apostles, the, are, are, we are built on the household of God, are built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And I think the prophets are those first days. I think we could also say in some way, there's a way in which they are the prophets of the Old Testament, which we can go back and look at, which speak at times, even though the church was a mystery and it wasn't clearly spread out, that speak at times of what the church would be like. But I think the apostles and prophets spoken here in Ephesians are the first century prophets that worked alongside of the apostles to bring God's word to us. And I think that prophets are still around today. I think the gift of prophecy still happens today. The Bible says don't despise prophecy, but, but let everyone judge. So when someone prophesies, it doesn't mean we got to take it as the word of God, but we judge as to whether or not it is, and we need to give it a fair hearing and not despise those uh, who have, uh, who actually give us prophecies. And I've had a lot of people over the years that have come to me and said, thus says the Lord, and I have judged it to not be from God. And there have been times when someone comes to me and says, thus says the Lord, that I have judged it actually to be from God, believing that it is actually from God. All right, so thank you, Renee, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, our next question comes from, looks like, um, yeah, Light Skin Patriot, good to see you. Um, hello, Pastor Robert. Could you clarify the Bible view we should look at the issue of self-defense, specifically pertaining to firearms and the possible use of deadly force? Thank you. So you um, was Jesus a pacifist? Did Jesus teach us that we should be a pacifist? And if someone breaks into my house, do I have the right as a Christian and a believer to defend my wife and to defend my home and my own life with a weapon? That's a really good question. So when Jesus sent out his disciples the first time, he said, don't take any swords with you. Don't take any wallet with you. And he sends them out. Then he says to them later on, I told you before not to take any swords with you, but now I tell you to take two. And it's interesting that on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter had a sword on him. He pulled a sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And there's a really good lesson in that, that, you know, confrontation and carrying firearms or banishing swords can put you in a position that you would end up dying from them. And so, you know, I, I think about that in Arizona, you can strap on a gun and you can walk down the street. And there are certain places you can't go into with a gun, like a bank and other places, but most places in Arizona, you can go with a gun. And when someone does that, you got to wonder, are they somehow do they need to hear what Jesus said when he said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, and then of course we have the famous passage where Jesus says to turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them your left cheek. And so people say that this means that Jesus was a pacifist and we should not protect ourselves. And we've given up our right of self-defense. 
I don't believe so. To strike you on a cheek, although it can be brutal, right? I mean, someone could strike you and really hurt you, uh, slap you in the cheek, hit you with an open palm, and it could really hurt you. Um, however, it's still an insult. It's more of an insult than it is. It, it, Jesus didn't say, if someone's swinging at you with a club, then let him hit you with a club on the other side of your face. I don't think that that's ever justified. There have been Christians in history that have done this very thing, that when they are being attacked, they open themselves up to the attacker. I don't know whether that is wise. I don't know whether that is directed by God to them specifically, whether God spoke to their heart to do that. But I think we have the right to defend ourselves with a weapon. And if someone's going to break into our house, to defend ourselves by shooting them. That's what I believe. There are certainly going to be people who, pastors, uh, theologians, who would disagree with me, but I believe that the Bible does state that we have the right to be able to defend ourselves. And so that's how I would answer that um, pertaining to firearms. Yeah, there might be a point where you need to use deadly force to protect your home, well, to protect you, your family, and your kids. I don't know about protecting your home, right? I mean, the bad guys gonna get to your house, they might call it vandalism. You probably have insurance to be able to take care of it. So I don't know that I would use deadly force to protect my home, although most states allow you to. If someone comes into your home, that you can use deadly force. And this is one of the problems that I find with no-knock warrants. And I understand that sometimes there are people that you need to get to so they don't arm themselves and hurt the police officers. But sometimes people with no-knock warrants have woke up with a firearm to defend themselves and they get shot and killed when they have gone into their home. And I don't know that that should be allowed. All right, so just kind of spitballing a little bit further than where your question went. So thank you for your question. I do appreciate it and it's good to have you here with us. And if you are joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. We hope that you're blessed by what God is doing as we take time to answer questions through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God says so we can know what to believe. Being like the Bereans who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians in that they received the word of God with all joy, but then searched the scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. That is our desire. That is our heart. So our next question comes from Lisa. Lisa joins us from Facebook and Lisa says, question, what if you work on some Sundays and are off some Sundays? Does that, does God hold that against you? Thank you for your question, Lisa. I really do appreciate it. So the thought is the idea of a Sabbath, that we would have a day that we would set apart for God. And I think of, um, Oh, what's his name from Chariots of Fire? I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but I think of him not running on Sunday. Famously, would not run on Sundays because he felt like it was um, a time for Sabbath. Um, I do know that when radical Islam wants to make a point about killing Americans or killing Christians and Jews, they will say, we're going to take care of Saturday first, then we're going to take care of Sunday. Meaning Saturday for Jews and Sunday for Christians. But the co correlation between Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath, I don't think can be made. I realize that people have done it. I realize that, you know, in the United States, liquor wasn't sold on Sundays or maybe even still at certain places is not because it's considered to be the Sabbath day. And that, you know, um, we make it like the Sabbath. However, I think there's a difference, Lisa, and I wanna just take a moment to explain this, all right? So let's talk about the Sabbath day first. The Sabbath day was given to the Jewish nation. And I have videos on this, full-length videos, and hot topics on whether or not a Christian should keep the Sabbath. And I go into and I, I go over the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Sabbath day. And God says to the nation of Israel, to Israel, that they are to keep the Sabbath. I realize that it's in the Ten Commandments, but remember the Ten Commandments are in the context of the law given to Israel. 
And every one of the Ten Commandments, we can use other passages to be able to support, not to commit adultery, not to murder, not to steal, not to bear false witness. But you can't do that with the Sabbath. There's no other passages that come back and support the Sabbath. And so when people will ask me, do you think you should keep the Ten Commandments? I always say no. No. I'm not under the Ten Commandments. Those were given to the nation of Israel. I think they're great principles. And so the question is, uh, what do I do now? And what about Christians who want to keep the Sabbath, right? What about, what about those? And I'm going to go to Romans 14 here, and I want to show you this passage. What about those who want to keep the Sabbath? And what if you want to have a day that you set aside? And what if you don't want to work on Sundays, but you want to have a day to set aside to God? Well, listen to what Paul says here, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. Listen to what Paul says regarding the issue of Sabbaths and other things in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. So now he's going to give some doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, a lot of jokes go out about that verse, right? Vegetarians are weak, and um, I'll only make that joke. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge the one who eats. For God has received him. Who are, who are you to judge another servant? So leave it alone. If someone decides, I want to eat only meat, I mean, eat only vegetables, let them alone. If someone decides, I want to eat only meat, leave them alone. I saw that there is a diet where you eat only meat now, um, and there's a diet you eat only vegetables. Leave them alone. Uh, if you want to eat kosher food, fine. If you don't want to leave kosher food, fine. These are doubtful things. So then he says, to his master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be able to make him stand, for God is able to make him stand. So God's going to handle it. Then he goes on to a second issue, which is the issue we're talking about today. One person esteems one day above another. Excuse me. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. So in other words, one person goes, I'm going to have Sunday to worship God. Another person says, I worship God on every day. I don't need a day. And well, let me, let me deal with that issue after I deal with this. So one person says, I worship God every day. I don't need a specific day. The other person says, I have a day that is above every other day. Then he says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That means you have the right to decide whether you want to have Saturday as a Sabbath, Sunday as a Sabbath, or every day serving God. The issue isn't whether or not I serve God or whether or not I seek God. Because remember, the Sabbath was not only to get rest, but the Sabbath was also to focus on God. That's in the Old Testament. A lot of people who are Sabbatarians today think that it's going to church. It wasn't. They did go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, but you couldn't travel over a certain amount. So if you were not close, you couldn't go. And he says, he who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. All right. So I think that that becomes pretty clear that you and I have the right to be able to decide if we want to have a special day or not. This is something God's given us to be able to do. And we need to be fully convinced in our own mind. So... If you decide, you know what, I want to I wanna not work on, on Sundays, then, then don't do it. And you might have to get a new job to do that. But you are not under condemnation for not doing it. Neither do you have to keep the Sabbath on Sunday. Neither do you have to keep it on Saturday either, by the way. Why? Because Jesus has become our Sabbath. Jesus became everything in the law. He became the sacrifice that was given. That's what all the sacrifices spoke of. He became the high priest that offered the sacrifice because he offered himself. And we have a high priest now who is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the book of Hebrews. And he became our Sabbath so that I no longer have a day of rest because Jesus is my rest. Come unto me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All right. So thank you very much, Lisa, for your question. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you guys 
for joining us in our Q&A. It's been great being able to spend time with you, answering your questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire again is to know what God says and how we can live. May you stay close to Christ. May you love Him. May you evaluate your life and where you're at and the things that are going on. And may God open doors so that you can be light for Him, salt, so that people can see Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have a service in two hours. It's four o'clock right now. We'll have a service that starts at six o'clock. Um, you can go to our East or West Campus if you're here in Tucson. If you are somewhere else, you can watch us online, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, .com or Roku or Apple TV. You can join us live on any one of those platforms. Um, tonight, we are going to be talking about, um, what are we talking about tonight? Uh, so tonight, it's really funny. I got a whole message prepared and it, well, again, skipped my mind exactly what we're going to be talking about. Um, but tonight, we're going to be talking about persistence in prayer and why we have to persist. If, it wouldn't one prayer just be enough? Why do I have to pray again and again and keep praying? I need to pray and keep praying until God answers me. Why do I have to do that? So we'll talk about what the Bible says and why God would do something like that and why you continue to pray until you get an answer. All right, so the title of our message is Pray Until You Get a Breakthrough. And we're gonna talk about exactly what kind of breakthrough I'm talking about in our service tonight. So I look forward to seeing you tonight. We'll also have the same service tomorrow morning four times. All right, God bless you guys. It's been good being here with you and we will see you next time. We will have, Lord willing, a Q&A this coming up Saturday. All right, God bless you guys.